Just a four-hour drive from the site of this week's massacre at an elementary school, the National Rifle Association will hold its biggest event of the year. It's going to be at this huge convention center in downtown Houston. Uh, there are going to be headliners, including former President Donald Trump, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Isaac Arnsdorf is a national political reporter for The Post, and he's actually heading to Houston to cover the NRA's annual meeting starting Friday. It's this big convention for the gun rights group, and it looks like the event is going to go forward as planned. There's certainly been calls from Democrats that uh, they shouldn't be going ahead with this. The NRA and Republican politicians have really been unflinching. The NRA says it has 5 million members across the U.S. For a long time, they've been the voice of the gun lobby in America. But as Isaac has reported, that might be changing. You've seen President Biden and a lot of other Democrats in the aftermath of this latest tragedy talking about needing to overcome the gun lobby. And, you know, the image that a lot of people have in their minds is the NRA as this brick wall that stands between Congress and any gun legislation. And the reality at this point is really pretty different. The NRA for years has been struggling with lawsuits and an investigation by the New York Attorney General and infighting between its executives and allegations that they were misspending resources. And that's really taken a toll on the ability of the NRA to throw its weight around in lobbying and politics the way that it used to. But that weakness from the NRA itself should not be confused with any diminishment in the power of gun rights as an animating issue in the Republican Party and actually the fading of the NRA as an institutional voice has created room for more extreme groups with more combative tactics and more hardline positions. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 26th. Today, we dive deep into the NRA, its role after mass shootings, and what the group's waning power means for the direction of gun control in this country. So, Isaac, how has the NRA responded to school shootings in the past? Thinking about the meeting being in Texas just a few days after this shooting there, there's an echo actually of Columbine um, in 1999 and the NRA was having its meeting in Denver just a little bit after that. And yes, NRA members are surely among the police and fire and SWAT team heroes who risked their lives to rescue the students of Columbine. And there was a lot of pressure to cancel it and they ended up going forward and scaling it down, and, and there were a lot of protests. Don't come here. We're already here. If you look back at how, after the Sandy Hook massacre 10 years ago, in the immediate aftermath, people really didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And there was actually a whole week, seven days, when the NRA went completely dark, didn't say anything. And what they ended up coming out and taking a really hardline stance. And that set the NRA 
on the course that it's taken over the past decade, which has really been to align more with the Republican Party and more with a broader kind of culture wars set of issue so that it's not just gun rights, but everything, all these other divisive identity issues um, that go with it that are animating the Republican Party. But that's a real contrast to the response this week when people weren't really waiting around to see how the NRA was going to respond to this. And Republicans were basically immediately lining up around not having any new legislation. Can you actually just talk a little bit more about the specific challenges the NRA is facing now? Like you mentioned legal challenges, financial ones. What is it that's creating this situation for them? Well, first of all, even when the NRA was at the peak of its powers, there was definitely a popular misconception about where that power came from. They do make campaign contributions. They do spend outside money on election ads, but they're not the biggest. And that was never really what it was about. It was their ability to mobilize their membership to flood lawmakers with pressure from their constituents. That was the power of the NRA. And that's where there's a question about, you know, with all its internal infighting, can the NRA really bring that to bear anymore? Or is that power going out to other groups? The NRA has been hounded by fighting between different power centers within the organization and allegations that its CEO, Wayne LaPierre, was misusing the organization's money on personal spending. And that has been under investigation by the New York Attorney General, who actually tried to totally shut down the organization. There was a time when the NRA was uh, had filed for bankruptcy, and neither of those things actually ended up happening in court, but that litigation continues. And you can see the, the toll that it's taking in the shrinking of the NRA's budget. They've got less money to bring to bear on throwing their weight around in politics. Mm-hmm. And so there are these other groups you're talking about, right, that are on the scene, so to speak. And is it that they're filling this vacuum? Um, can you tell me, like, who are those groups? Who are they? Yeah, exactly. There's, you know, there's a perception that the NRA is out of step with the movement and there are these competing groups that want to step in and and carry that mantle. And these are groups that take a harder line against no compromise, no negotiating, no gun regulations at all of any kind. Um, And some of them have been around for a while, like Gun Owners for America or the National Association for Gun Rights. And they've long been critical of the NRA. And they're telling us now that they're really seeing a, a huge increase in their own fundraising and their own activism. And that's being driven by people who are turning away from the NRA. There's also, I think, really interesting, the former chief of staff to Marjorie Taylor Greene has joined up with a group called the American Firearms Association that takes a self-described, more confrontational approach. And it used to be that an A rating from the NRA was something that every Republican politician and even some Democratic politicians really wanted. And now that's like that's almost not enough for a lot of Republican politicians. And they're also going after the endorsements from from these other groups that used to be viewed as more fringe. So these other groups that are, you know, more extreme than the NRA, what are some examples of of things that they are saying the NRA is being too compromising on? 
Well, they're critical of the NRA negotiating at all. You know that that the NRA engages in these negotiations appears you know open to some compromises, and they point to the role that the NRA had in 2013 over the Mansion Toomey bill, um, which would have expanded background checks after the Sandy Hook massacre, and the NRA was helping to draft that bill and then ended up opposing it because of pressure from some of these other groups. And then another example is after the Las Vegas shooting in 2017, the Trump administration took some steps toward regulating bump stocks, which is a piece of equipment that makes a semi-automatic gun act more like a machine gun. By the way, bump stocks, we're writing that out. I'm writing that out myself. I don't care if Congress does it or not. I'm writing it out myself, okay? You put it into the machine gun category, which is what it is. It becomes essentially a machine gun and nobody's going to be able. It's going to be very hard to get them. So we're writing out bump stocks. And the NRA was initially supportive of that, which is an- another example where these other groups are saying, you know, that their view is, is the NRA is like giving politicians cover to agree to things where actually uh, they think that it should just be a non-starter. This week, I've also just seen a lot of attention paid to members of Congress, primarily Republicans, who have received money from the NRA. Is that still a relevant factor when we're talking about why lawmakers, particularly Republicans, are so hesitant to do anything uh, resembling gun control? It's really not. The money is there, but that is not what Republican lawmakers are thinking when they're thinking, am I going to be open to gun control legislation? They're thinking about their constituents who are really motivated by this issue. And those are the kind of people who in the past, you know, might be on the NRA's mailing list and might respond to an NRA call to action. But now, you know, they don't necessarily need the NRA. This has just become so, so cemented as part of what it means to be a Republican, that the NRA's role in galvanizing that has really fallen off, again, both because of of the NRA's ability to deliver on that, but also just the way that that movement sort of took on a life of its own and has has developed a potency independent of the NRA. Okay, but what do we know about where voters actually stand on gun control policies, whether nationally or in these states or districts um, that have elected officials who are so opposed to doing anything on gun control? Um, is it is it that so many people in these places are opposed to it? Or is it like, you know, there's a small percentage of very passionate people who are very active in politics, who, who they care very deeply about this one issue? So... Yeah, there's definitely an asymmetry in the intensity of how people feel about this issue. And there's also the geography matters. Rural, western, and southern states that tend to be more Republican tend to have more gun owners and more people who care really strongly about this issue. Overall, there was a Gallup poll last year that found 52% nationwide support for stricter gun control, but that's that's actually a decline of five points. It's still slightly a majority, but it's the lowest since 2014. This was obviously last year before the two shootings this month. There are some things like preventing people with mental illness from purchasing guns that do pull pretty high with both parties. But even for issues that are broadly popular because of the 
representation in Congress that doesn't translate into an easy vote. Mm. I'm just really struck because, you know, when we think about the NRA as an institution and as this, you know, like almost larger than life entity within American politics, American culture. I mean, so many of us remember Charlton Heston and, you know, from my dead cold hands or whatever it was that he said at the time. So as uh, we set out this year to defeat the divisive forces that would take freedom away, I want to say those fighting words for everyone within the sound of my voice to hear and to heed from my cold, dead hands. And that they almost seem like this insurmountable entity. But what I'm hearing from you is that the organization itself is troubled and is facing opposition and, and you know, even among its own community of people who, who want to relax and have no restrictions on guns. But what kind of lasting influence have they had on on this conversation and on the landscape of gun rights and and gun control in this country? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the NRA made its own bed in that respect. You know, the, the NRA's pushing to align itself more closely with Republicans and to take these harsher stances has energized the movement that, you know, kind of outlives it in this way and um, has sort of gotten, you know, far beyond the NRA's ability to harness anymore. And, you know, there's a parallel there with other fixtures in the Republican establishment where these institutions don't have the grip that they used to in terms of being able to mobilize the party's base. And you you have a base that demands more uncompromising positions that um, is really driving the direction instead. After the break... We talk with Isaac about how the conversation on gun control has moved beyond the NRA. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It seems like every time there is a shooting like this, the NRA does seem to face intense criticism, but they always bounce back. Do do they have a playbook in these moments of how to respond? That was, you know, going back to that moment after Sandy Hook, there was that moment when it wasn't clear and there was some debate within the NRA about how they were going to handle it. From what we can tell now, it looks like they're going to continue with the stance that they developed after Sandy Hook, which was to encourage um, more guns as security in schools. The statement that they made this week was to the effect of uh, redouble our commitment to making our schools secure, which um, sounds like they're going to be continuing with the 
slogan that came out after Sandy Hook about, you know, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And, you know, particularly as we learn more about the facts in Uvalde and, you know, the fact that there were heavily armed officers there that failed to stop this. Um, and, you know, thinking back also to Parkland, where there there was a, a school resource officer and it, it still didn't prevent it. Yeah, it's just, and I'm also seeing that sort of line of of reasoning reflected in conservative media and among politicians themselves too, not just the NRA, right? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I want to mention a few more expressions of just how far this has moved. After Sandy Hook, Alex Jones had this conspiracy theory that it didn't really happen and it was staged. And that was just Alex Jones. But you know, now you're seeing an Arizona state senator saying something like that after Buffalo, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who spread that conspiracy theory before she was a member of Congress, is now a member of Congress. So the, you know, what was a, a you know, a very very fringe conspiracy theory 10 years ago has really become, you know, a more common type of misinformation. And, you know, I think I always pay a lot of attention to campaign ads because what they tell us about uh, how the campaigns are sizing up the electorate. And, you know, it used to be that you'd like have a, have the candidate with a hunting rifle, you know, and that was a way of showing that they were strong on the second amendment. And now there's this literal arms race where they're just bringing out bigger and bigger guns and shooting them at more and more suggestive things. Even so far as uh, there was one ad in the Arizona Senate race that was shooting them at, at actors playing democratic politicians. Wow. Isaac, what about groups on the other side of this debate? It, it seemed like after Sandy Hook, there was this mobilization of gun control groups. And didn't, you know, former mayor Mike Bloomberg pour millions into supporting gun control? What does that landscape look like and where do they feature in this? Yes. And, and those groups are, are out now saying, you know, it's not 2012. The NRA is a shadow of its former self. And now's the time they want to press that advantage to say that the gun lobby is not the obstacle that it used to be. And now is the time to act. But the problem is that they also do recognize um, the way that it's not all about the gun lobby anymore. And, and they are seeing that views on gun rights have hardened in the Republican Party, independent of whatever the NRA is saying. Mm -hmm. I think we do have to see how, how hard the Democrats want to push this. You know, I was talking about the Republican ads. There has been also a huge crease in, in Democratic campaign ads that mention guns and the NRA. And Democrats have in recent years, you know, leaned into campaigning on this issue in a way where before they were, were more afraid of it. But we're, we're sort of hearing some fatalism from Senate Democrats already. So um, I think we don't know yet how hard they're really going to push in this election year to try to get something done. And then finally, you know, I'm interested to see tomorrow, how are the politicians who are going to be there going to handle this? I wonder what Trump is going to say. You know, I don't know which way he's going to go with this. Um, you know, there was always an idea with like, maybe Trump could have a Nixon to China moment on gun control in a way that no one else could. Isaac, I wonder if this week for you covering the NRA and, and this part of things feels almost like deja vu. Like, has anything really changed in, in this conversation? Well, the role of the NRA has changed. 
Some of my colleagues had a very good story looking back to Biden's role in the Manchin-Toomey bill negotiations after Sandy Hook. And the NRA had a very important role as kind of like, you know, being the seat at the table representing gun owners. What ended up happening was, you know, the NRA was negotiating and then came under pressure from these more extreme groups that kind of pressured the NRA into ultimately opposing the proposal and helping to sink it. You know, if there's another big push like that, you know, even on the same kind of proposal about background checks, the NRA is not going to be the the go-to representative anymore. It's going to go, it's going to skip that step and kind of go directly to having this more fragmented, splintered, uh, hardline scramble of opposition. Thank you for your time, Isaac. Thank you. Isaac Arnsdorf is a national political reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Emma Talkoff with help from Andrea Salcedo. It was mixed by Renny Svernovsky and edited by Rina Flores. I'm Elahi Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.